This is a Scream Queen production. Carpenter, and you're listening to So Dead. It's time for Chapter 4 of True Crime Storytime, sponsored by your local true crime bookshop, Dead Time Stories, True Crime, and Other Books, located in Lansing, Michigan. If you can't make it into the shop to purchase today's featured book, you can order it online, and we will ship it right to you. Okay, let's go. The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, by journalist Masha Gessen, was released in 2016 and is about the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, which was almost a decade ago. Isn't that wild? It feels not that long ago, but yeah, it'll be nine years this month. And I know we all remember when this happened. We either watched it happen live or we flipped on CNN within minutes and then were glued to our TVs for the next week as the bombers were hunted down. But as I am learning, Even big historical events are not immune to the effects of memory loss, which we all suffer from as we age, and very often things did not happen quite as we remembered them, which makes this book definitely worth the read. Uh, But before you read it, let's talk about it a little bit. The Boston Marathon is the world's oldest annual marathon and dates back to 1897. It is typically held on the third Monday in April. The first Boston Marathon had just 15 participants. That number has grown, and there are now roughly 30,000 participants each year and another half million spectators. 500,000 people go to watch this event. The only year that the Boston Marathon has ever been canceled was in 2020 because COVID has ruined everything. In 2021, it was pushed back to October to give more people time to get that jab, But this year, it is finally making its return to its rightful home in April, and it will be held on Monday, April 18th. Just like in Michigan, where I and many of you live, the weather in Massachusetts is a crapshoot in April. April 15th, 2012 was a Monday. When the race started that morning, the temperature was in the 40s. Now, there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that I would rather do less than get up on a Monday morning and go run 26.2 miles in 40-degree weather. No thank you, sir. But 26,000 people, they got up that morning, they taped their little numbers to their chests, and they committed to completing, or trying to complete, the 117th annual Boston Marathon. The wheelchair race began at 9.17 a.m., The women's race began at 9.32 a.m., and the men's race began at 10 a.m. on the dot. The finish line was first breach at 10.42 a.m. by wheelchair racer Hiroyuki Yamamoto. I'm so sorry, I probably mispronounced that, Um, and it's just going to get worse with these next couple of names. 
Winner of the women's race, Rita Jep2, crossed the finish line at 11.58 a.m. And the men's winner, Lalisa DeSissa, sorry, uh, crossed the finish line at 12.10 p.m. But that was just the fastest of the fast. And there were over 20,000 other people in that race. It was expected to go well into the late afternoon, early evening hours. As 3 p.m. approached, the temperature had warmed to nearly 60 degrees, so not a bad day, and there were still around 6,000 people racing toward that finish line. At 2.49 p.m., four hours, nine minutes, and 43 seconds into the race, there was an explosion outside Marathon Sports, located at 673 Boylston Street, less than half a block from the finish line. 14 seconds later, there was a second explosion just a block further west at 755 Boylan Street. Now, we, as a country, still have, what, like 60 to 70 years before those who vividly remember 9-11 are gone, or at least our memories are gone. And that trauma, it is not going anywhere. So the nationwide panic, the worldwide panic as bombs started exploding at the Boston Marathon was instant. Anytime there are half a million people gathered in one place and tens of thousands of people trying to run over 25 miles, it's good to have emergency personnel on hand, you know, just in case. So there was a fleet of first responders on standby, but it was not a fleet that was equipped to deal with a terrorist attack. Ambulances, police cars, fire trucks, and first response helicopters from all over the state and beyond flocked to the scene. Nearly 6,000 race participants, still running full speed ahead right toward the carnage, were diverted. Hundreds of thousands of spectators fled on foot, leaving thousands of backpacks and duffel bags and packages and strollers and wagons behind in the chaos, which When you're evaluating the threat of possible additional explosions after a bombing, the last thing that you want to see is backpacks and packages all over the place. Three civilians were killed in the blast. Eight-year-old Martin Richard, who was watching the race with his family, was standing just four feet from the second bomb. He bled to death on the street as his mother leaned over him, begging him to live. 23-year-old Ling Zi Lu, a graduate student from China, went down to watch the marathon during a study break. She, too, was standing too close to the second bomb. She bled to death before help could reach her. 29-year-old Crystal Campbell had been watching the Boston Marathon from the sidelines since she was a little girl. She was standing near the location of the first bomb, and she also bled to death before she could get to the hospital. Over 265 others were injured in the bombing. Even with 27 hospitals in the area, they quickly became overwhelmed. At least 14 of the people injured had limbs amputated, some at the hospital because their injuries were too great and they would have died otherwise, but some of those suffered traumatic amputations, meaning that their limbs were actually severed in the blast. The bombs were determined to be homemade pressure cooker bombs loaded with bits of metal, nails, and ball bearings placed inside backpacks and rigged to explode with little toy car remote controls. The FBI, CIA, and ATF, all of the letters, 
honed in very quickly on their suspects, brothers Jahar and Tamerlan Tsarnaev, Chechen-American extremists seeking retribution for U.S. military action in Afghanistan and Iraq. Tamerlan was 26 and Jahar was just 19. As the FBI, CIA, ATF, LMNOP worked to figure out if the brothers had acted alone, if there was still a threat, what, if any, organization was maybe behind the attack, the entire city of Boston was essentially shut down. Three days after the bombing, on April 18th, the FBI released images of the Sarnayev brothers to the public at 5.20 p.m. The pressure was on and the brothers panicked. So just over two hours later, at 7.40 p.m., they ambushed and murdered an MIT police officer, 27-year-old Sean Collier, as he sat in his squad car. Collier was shot six times by the Sarnayev brothers because they wanted his service revolver. Obviously, they already had guns, but they wanted more, uh, so they killed him for his and then were unable to free it from its holster because it had a security retention system and they couldn't figure out how to unlock it. Just before 11 p.m. that night, the Sarnaya brothers approached a black Mercedes-Benz SUV parked along the street in a Boston neighborhood. Inside was 26-year-old Danny Meng, who'd pulled over to answer a text message. Tamerlan knocked on the window, so Danny rolled it down. Uh, Tamerlan pointed a gun at him and said, don't be stupid. He told Danny that he was responsible for the bombing and that he'd just killed a policeman in Cambridge. Tamerlan (coughs) commanded... Tamerlan commandeered the vehicle, Jahar hopped inside, and the two held Danny Meng hostage for nearly 90 minutes. They forced him to withdraw $800 from ATMs. They talked about their plan to go to New York City and bomb Times Square. They stopped at a Shell gas station to load up on gas and snacks for their ride to Times Square, and they planned to take Danny along with them for whatever reason. But while Jahar was inside buying junk food and Tamerlan was distracted trying to program the GPS, Danny saw an opportunity to escape and he took it. He jumped out of the SUV and ran to the mobile gas station across the street from which he called 911. And the Sarnayev brothers took off. Just after midnight, so we're in the early hours of April 19th now, in nearby Waterton, a police officer spotted the brothers and began to follow them. At this point, Tamerlan was driving Danny Meng's black SUV and Jahar was following him in a green Honda Civic. The brothers pulled over on Laurel Street, you know the place, and 26-year-old Tamerlan Sarnayev stepped out of the SUV and immediately began firing on police. They returned fire and a seven-minute-long shootout ensued in the middle of a neighborhood. Over 300 rounds were fired. The brothers threw homemade grenades and set off another pressure cooker bomb. Both brothers were shot multiple times, but they kept on going. Tamerlan eventually ran out of ammunition, and he was tackled by police. While he wrestled with them in the street, 19-year-old Jahar hopped into Danny Meng's SUV and drove straight into the fray. Now, I'm not sure if he just panicked and was trying to get away or if he intended to hit the pile of humans in the street. Uh, One theory is that he only saw the police officers. He didn't see his brother. But the end result was that he, not the police, killed his brother. He ran over Tamerlan and then dragged him a short distance before fleeing the scene. 
Tamerlan died a short time later, and once again, Jahar was in the wind. But now he was wounded and alone. 17 officers were injured in the shootout, one critically, but he survived. Boston Police Department Sergeant Dennis D.J. Simmons suffered serious head wounds from a grenade explosion, and while he initially recovered to an extent, he died almost a full year later, on April 10, 2014, from a brain aneurysm as a result of his injuries. He was only 28 years old. Now back to that little fucker, Jahar Sarnayev, who managed to elude police again. The city of Waterton was put on lockdown. Police and news helicopters circled, and we were all glued to our TVs watching the footage. One specific scene I remember is a home that called the non-emergency police number because they needed milk. I can't remember if it was like formula milk for a baby, but they needed milk very badly and couldn't leave their house. So there was video of this police officer taking like milk and bread um, and like a couple bags of groceries to a house because nobody could leave their houses for an entire fucking day. Hmm. (laughs) That doesn't sound... Saying it out loud, it doesn't sound so crazy now because like we've all been there, right? Um, But at the time... That was like the thought of being trapped in your house and not able to leave, <laughs> to leave it for a whole day. You have to be kidding me. Okay, sorry. Let's move on. So the FBI, ATF, XYZ, National Guard, state police, and local police launched a door-to-door search in tactical gear with armored vehicles, all for one 19-year-old kid who kept getting away from them. The search for Jahar Sarnayev began a little after midnight on April 19th and went throughout the morning, the afternoon, and into the early evening. After turning up nothing, the shelter-in-place order in Waterton was lifted. A couple hours later, a dude named David Henneberry was inspecting his property, as one does after their neighborhood has been terrorized by a homicidal maniac, and he noticed that the tarp covering his boat was loose. When he took a closer look, he saw Jahar Sarnayev lying inside the boat in a pool of blood. Authorities rushed to the scene, and another shootout ensued. Or so they said. They claimed that Jahar Sarnayev was shooting at them from inside the boat and that they exchanged fire with him for over an hour before taking him into custody. But Jahar didn't have a weapon on him when he was captured, so the police were literally just firing shots into a boat with a dying kid inside in the middle of the suburbs for an hour. Now, This is not, like, I'm not uh, arguing that they shouldn't have been shooting at him or maybe, like, hit him and killed him would have been warranted, saved us a bunch of tax dollars and all of that. But what really happened, it came out in a later investigation, was that he moved inside the boat. One of the officers panicked. He started shooting, and then they all started shooting. And a whole lot has come out in, you know— punishments, I don't know if that's the right word, penalties came down because this was all handled so poorly by police officers. And thankfully, no civilians were injured, but like they had two uncoordinated, completely wild shootouts in the middle of neighborhoods trying to get this kid. So there was a lot of talk later about how badly that was all handled. So I'm 
I'm merely alluding to that, not that Jahar Sarnayev did not deserve to be shot a bajillion times and killed because, you know, my opinion, absolutely. Bye. So after an hour of gunfighting amongst themselves, police managed to finally take Jahar Sarnayev into custody, and he was taken to the hospital in critical condition. Doctors did not expect him to survive. He had been shot in the head, the neck, the legs, and the hand. Some of those injuries were from the shootout the night before, during which he ran over and killed his own brother, while others were sustained during the boat shootout, during which he didn't even have a weapon. Unfortunately for all, Jahar pulled through. He was arraigned from his hospital bed, and in July of 2013, he pleaded not guilty to over 30 charges. His trial began in March of 2015, and on April 8th, he was found guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to death, but in July of 2020, his death sentence was overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals on the grounds that jurors were not screened for potential bias. I mean, everyone in the area knew about this case. Obviously, um, a change of venue had been requested and denied, and so how impartial could a jury of local residents really be, right? I mean, does make a little bit of sense, as much as I hate it. Now, there was no chance of Jahar being released at all. It was just a matter of life in prison or death sentence. I vote for option B, um, but the appellate court saw it differently. On March 4th, 2022, however, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the appellate court's decision and they reinstated Jahar Sarnayev's death sentence. He is now 28 years old and back on death row where he belongs. And this was a much longer story time than I intended for it to be, so don't get used to that. These are supposed to be like 10 minutes and under, but there's there's obviously so much, so much about this case, and I just only briefly touched on the big points. But to read all about this story, pick up a copy of Masha Gessen's The Brothers at Deadtime Stories, True Crime, and Other Books either in person or online. If you don't want to buy your copy from me, that's totally cool-ish, as long as you don't buy it from the evil A. Check out your local independent bookstore. And even if, you know, you prefer eBooks or audiobooks, you can still support your local indie bookstores over Jeff Bezos. Check out the Deadtime Stories website for info on how to get eBooks through a site called My Must Reads and audiobooks through Libro.fm. Um, With both of those sites, a portion of the proceeds from your purchase go to your favorite indie bookstore. So kind of at the beginning of your shopping experience, you choose your indie bookstore, whether that's Deadtime Stories or someone else. You pick that bookstore, and then you can choose from any books, not just ones that you would actually come find on our shelves. And once you make your purchase, a part of those proceeds come back to the bookstore that you've chosen. So just just a little FYI, because I know a lot of people don't know that those options exist, but they do. In other news, a new episode of So Dead is coming your way next week, so stay tuned for that. And until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. 